Welcome to the Female Disruptors Office Hours, a podcast audio experience created for women by women. My name is Lisa Beyer, and I will be your host. Each episode, I will interview females and minorities disrupting in their space. We're going to talk about how you can break through the age and gender discrimination, how women can take back your power, how you can have anything you want at any age. So let's get started. This is the key thing for me is that when we think about being disruptors, it's something we need to practice every single day, not just on the occasion when it really counts. When you get to that point, you have to have that confidence again that I can step in. I can see a change that needs to happen and I'm going to go make that happen. Because if not me, then who? If not me in this moment, at what time in the future? I was speaking to a young woman and she goes, I really want to start a company, but there are some things I have to get done first. I'm like, what are these things? Are they like, I have to like clean my house? Do I have to like make sure things are set? I mean, what is that? She goes, I need to take this course and to have this experience. I'm like, no, you need to start a company. If you believe that there's a need that's being unmet, there's an opportunity, you're never going to be 100% ready and prepared for that. And yet we've been told and taught to be insecure, to think that, well, there's always something more I can have to do before I'm ready to be that leader before I can be that disruptor. And like, you'll never be ready. You'll never be comfortable because that is the definition of being a disruptor. It's never going to be clear. So you have to get used to it. When I started my company, when I was right out of college, I had a business partner, another female. And I remember this is, you know, I never considered myself an entrepreneur. I never let clients know that I was one of the owners, you know, maybe every once in a while I would, you know, refer to myself as a partner, but I remember specifically on our business cards, we would use titles like account manager and creative director or account director and creative director, because for whatever reason, like there's different reasons I can remember talking about it, that we did it was, we didn't want necessarily like people to know that we were the owners because we wanted to make it like, we're not like the final decision maker, but also there was some underlying like happening where like, we didn't really feel like we were worthy of that, like saying we're a business owner yet, because we weren't at that level of success yet to say, yeah, I own the business. So it was just like things that, you know, craziness, it was was craziness. And now today, like the title entrepreneur is like almost overused, but I agree, like you need to start, you know, you don't have to have even a college degree. Like today, I'm not saying, you know, college degree isn't important, but you know, there's so many different ways that you can get experience. And I just talked to a 20 year old yesterday where she took a gap year and she's starting, you know, an NFT collection and her own business. And, you know, she's going to go back one day, but I was like, good for you. You know, like you don't have to wait until you graduate to start something. Yeah. We all have our side hustle, right? If if whatever that side hustle is, we're just experimenting with things. And that is that entrepreneurial founder disruptor bug that we all have this like little itch that we want to scratch. So scratch it, go and see and explore, do the side hustle. And then at some point you may like, you know, I want to do this. I, I really feel passionate about it. I'm going to go all in and I'm going to do it well. I have some savings. I have some expectations. If it doesn't, I have my backup plan and I'm going to be okay. And that's how it works. And, you know, it's oftentimes hard because our expectations of success are to get, you know, high paying jobs, to have a house, a nice car, two kids and a yard, whatever those definitions of success are, we have to make them our own. And as a disruptor, you're going to define your own success. I've been an analyst for 23 years. I never thought I would be an analyst for longer than two years, maybe, because I took on the job when my kids were young. I knew I wanted to have more babies. And like the idea of managing people, and when I had to manage babies at work, just 
didn't make sense to me. So I just wanted to go be an analyst for two years. And I realized this is the right thing for me. And so while everyone else in the world was going after dot-com startups and everything, I'm like, you know, this is the right thing for me right now. And I'm gonna be really happy and just like do my analyst kind of work, not realizing that this is my calling, that this is the place where I can be extremely disruptive and have an impact that was outsized compared to many of my friends who went to start all these amazing companies. So we don't know how life is going to be picked for us, how we will pick life and enter into it. So there's a part of me that says you have to be ready for that adventure. And that's a key part of being that disruptor because we don't know what the outcomes, it's not guaranteed. I talked to some young people today and they're like, oh yeah, I'll just go out, start a company, you know, exit it, sell it, and I'll be done. I can retire at age 30. I'm like, it's not that easy. You can't exactly plan that. So Will you be okay if the company doesn't work out, if you have to close it down, hopefully in an orderly way? What happens then? And it's not to say it won't work out, but are you going to be prepared for that? Because the chances are nine times out of 10, that's exactly what's going to happen. And you'll learn a lot along the way and it will have been worth it. And you do it again. <laughs> and then you'll pick up and do it again, is my bet. So uh, being an analyst and being in you know the mostly tech environment, what advice do you give men to help kind of level the, the playing field? I was talking to somebody last week, we we're out to dinner that he's in his, you know, late fifties, early sixties. And he was asking me what I'm doing now. I told him about female disruptors and asked me what's that all about. And I mentioned equal pay and the gender gap. And he was like, is that still a thing? And I'm like, yeah, that's like yeah. <laughs> a big, a big thing. And I think that, you know, there's a lot more awareness about it, but it's still a big problem. And mm -hmm. I think that, you know, men don't realize what they can or can't, what they, more what they can do. I think that they realize like what is not, let's just say appropriate without getting into like that side of things, but like, what can men actually do to be proactive to help women? I mean, to this person's point, look at your numbers. I bet if that person actually had pay numbers, equal pay numbers in front of him, he would see the differences in his own organization. He would see that the leadership pipeline was skewed towards men as you go through, that men are promoted at a disproportional rate compared to women, and that women of color in particular are disproportionately hampered in their advancement in their careers against every single other demographic. So number one, just know your numbers. Just know your numbers. Because if you look at the intersectionality of gender ethnicity, it is terrible pretty much every single organization. So number one, be aware that work needs to be done and how much work, how big that gap is. People in most cases have no idea. And they blame, well, we don't have good numbers or we can't rely on the numbers. And use the numbers that you can get and you still see just terrible numbers. So number one, just get the numbers. And second of all, really focus on belonging, creating that safety, encouraging women, taking them aside and saying, do you have, how do you feel about stepping up? Do you feel like you belong? Do you feel like you can say your mind? Are you checking thing, anything at the door? Because I want to make sure that you're not. And they should say this to every single person, regardless of their background. And when everyone is told that, it equalizes the playing field for everyone. But that's a conversation you have with every single person. You don't single out somebody, but when you make sure that there's a belonging across the board, that every single person can say, yes, absolutely. I am 100% comfortable with this then you're assured that the playing field is actually even. 
I would say that that would, you know, qualify as an internal PR campaign so that the communication is, you know, internally so that it's also going to be external and it has to mirror each other because, I mean, I think companies small struggle, companies large struggle. And it's something that I was just in one of our speakers from February, she was talking about how diversity breeds innovation and how that it's not just checking off the boxes of, you know, somebody that's qualified, let's say, you know, for the, whatever the position is, because they might not be able to check all the boxes, but if they're part of that diversity checkbox and bringing them on, then that's where innovation and creativity really open up. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like in so many ways, we interview for culture fit. We want everyone to fit into the culture. And instead we should be interviewing for culture add. Because when you add to your culture, because somebody is different, we know that we're going to benefit from that different experience, that different perspective, just to get a different point of view. The problem is that when you do that, you have to be prepared so that the immune system of your culture doesn't say, this thing is different. We're going to eject it out of our organization because we don't know how to deal with it. And that person feels really different. They've been brought in because of that difference and we value it but we're not prepared to accept it, to be able to receive it and see it as a good thing. So it's literally this idea of culture ad versus culture fit and how prepared are we to actually deal with differences and not to see it as a bad thing, but to see it as a positive thing. That's a fundamental change in cultures that are typically not good at being inclusive of differences. So diversity is a checking of numbers. Inclusiveness is this activity like, well, I bring you in, even if you're different. And this belonging is a self-feeling, this self-reported feeling that I belong. If you're doing that diversity and inclusion correctly, then the belonging will come to as well. But all of these have to be intentional. They just do not happen in the vacuum. And one of the reasons I joined PA is because the CEO set it out to say, I want a very diverse, differentiated leadership team. So I'm joining a leadership team that's half women. There are 12 of us and six of us are women. And that was intentional. That does not happen by accident. That's amazing. I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah, we still have some work to do on the board, but I mean, he intentionally rebuilt the executive team and said, I need women on it. Recruit women for these positions. And so half of us are here. Four of the women are actually five of the women are new. (laughs) So out of the six. So it was, it's a sea change and it was done with intention and, and done with amazing, amazing outcomes. So I'm ex- that's one of the reasons why I was so excited to join this company that's, is because it's not just talking about diversity and inclusion and belonging. It's actually doing it. It is. It is. And I was just reading a report. I think it was Morgan Stanley that said that they were going to, one of the requirements to invest in, you know, to make their investments into a company would be at least one woman, woman needs to be on the board. One, I'm like, whoa. I mean, that's like setting the bar pretty, you know, not too high. One, (laughs) how many people are normally on a board? Probably more than two. Yes. And, and so again, what's that bar going to be? What's the expectation? And, you know, how many women is too many women? Somebody asked on the Supreme court nine. (laughs) So nine justice of Supreme court all of the board members being women, that's when you have too many, right? And uh, you can never have too many because the perspectives of an underrepresented group are going to be so much more valuable because that is an additional add to in a voice that was not there before. Yeah. I just wanted to, again, like 
highlight your book, The Disruption Mindset. And what are some of your like maybe favorite takeaways, actionable takeaways that you can share from this book and that women can gain from? Well, I think one of the major ones is that when you think about disruption, we oftentimes think of people freewheeling it, standing at a whiteboard, lots of chaotic things happening. And what I found is that disruptive organizations and leaders are actually extremely well-organized. They have a lot of process. They have a lot of procedures, but these process procedures, the governance, the structure is not there to preserve the status quo. They're actually optimized to create change. And what I realized is that there's a very interesting contradiction, a paradox here, that you actually need order you need structure to create and scale change, to scale disruption, because it's great to come up with the original idea, but you're not going to embed it and transform the rest of the organization without that scaffolding, the structure, the process of procedures. So that's why disruptors need to be in two spaces. They need to have that vision of being able to say, this is the huge, crazy, audacious idea. But they also had, need to have that leadership, that leadership skill of putting and, and organizing people, of putting in those structures. I call these people the realist optimists. They can be optimistic about what the world's going to look like, but they're also realistic about what is the work we have to do today, that heavy lifting, and to get people over that huge obstacle to just get moving. And they can galvanize that and create a movement into this and create that momentum to move into the future. I'm just going to look at some questions here. So our comments, actually, Lubna is saying that equal pay is still a thing. She read yesterday that it's going to take 136 years to get to equal pay between men and women. Do you agree? And if anybody not, has not any if you get questions. more women on boards, not if you get more women on boards and in the boardroom, it will, it will shorten because I do think we're an acceleration platform. If you just look over the past years, that would be actually true. But man, if we're still going at the snail's pace, I just have no hope in humanity. And I do believe that we have a much more enlightened group of people coming into boardroom positions and into, the, into leadership positions and organizations. So I think as more women go into leadership, as more women come into the boardrooms, it will accelerate. It will not take 136 years. Fingers crossed. Right? Fingers crossed for sure. I mean, that brings me to another question. I mean, you mentioned earlier, everybody's got their side gig. One of the struggles that I've seen myself in talking to other business owners or, you know, leadership positions, whether they're, you know, in the C-suite or, you know, hiring talent or managing talent or trying to find talent what's happened over the past two years, especially with the pandemic and the great resignation is that it seems like there's less people want to stay. They don't want to stay as long or be committed to a brand or an organization for more than let's say a year and a half to two years is what I'm hearing is tops. And so, you know, as a business owner or a manager, by the time somebody is with you for a year, then you can kind of be like, okay, you know, now they've got this, but then they leave and then there's this turnover. So if somebody's, is that disruption? I mean, that's disruption kind of like not in a positive way, but if you're really going to be a disruptor, I mean, what do you advise like as far as being committed to gaining that experience and gaining that type of leadership or disruption in a positive way? Yeah, there are two things. I, I do think we need to have honest conversations with somebody when they join that, hey, I know you're going to not stay here forever. So let's talk about the day you leave, the day you start. And let's have an honest conversation. 
I'm going to give you as many opportunities as I can give you, and I hope you stay here for a long time. I hope it's a win-win situation, but I know it. I'm a small firm, but you know, even if you're like a 10,000 person company, we may not be able to provide all those things for you, all those opportunities that would really move you forward. But I guarantee you this, when the time comes for us to go our separate ways, I want to know months in advance so that I can help you find your next position. In return, I would ask you to help me find your replacement and train your replacement. So there's not this two week notice, it's the worst thing for me. So let's make a deal, weeks, months in advance. Let's make sure this is a smooth transition for both of us. And I will open up my entire network and help you. You will never stand alone because our relationship goes beyond just these couple of years that we're gonna be working together. You know, I'm gonna be on your LinkedIn profile and your resume for the rest of your life. So that relationship should reflect that. That's such a great um, point. I almost said that to somebody that this isn't like, this goes way beyond just our experience here together at the buyer group or or wherever we are together that you're right, we're gonna be on each other's LinkedIn profile. And I, I tell my daughter that I that as well. So Rachel, hi, it says Charlene, but it's really Rachel Weber under hi Charlene. There. Great to meet you, Charlene. Great to see you, Lisa. Quick intro for Rachel. So Rachel is the chief brand officer with Playboy. And we met a couple months ago when she was a speaker at an NFT conference in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And her presentation was amazing. She's going to give a full session in a couple hours here. But Rachel, thanks for joining the, the discussion about female disruptors and women disrupting. Um, you know, in your opinion, working for Playboy, which is an iconic brand, and, you know, I shared this with you when I saw you on the roster, I was like, wow, like, I can't imagine being the chief brand officer for Playboy, you know, as a female disruptor, but like hearing your story, like, you're, it's, it's just amazing how you're, you know, what you're doing, you know, with the brand. So can you share a little bit what the, the, the women working for Playboy today and what that looks like and what your team looks like? Sure. Well, thanks for having me and hi to everyone listening. Can't see all your faces, but hope everyone's having a great morning. We at Playboy are now a team of over 80% women. It's really been a transformation in our workforce over the last three years or so. I'll talk about this in more depth in, you know, about an hour and a half, you know, but really one of the driving reasons why I decided to join Playboy was the team that I met right at the outset of coming in and, you know, kind of getting to know what was going on at the company. And I met this incredibly creative and thoughtful and, you know, really introspective team that wanted to, you know, kind of really dissect and unearth what is in the core of this brand and how do we revolutionize that and bring that forward for a new set of, you know, a new audience and, and a new consumer base today. You know, we really, I was at National Geographic most recently before that. And one of the things that I saw at Nat Geo, this was just an anecdote that was really important kind of in bringing forward at Playboy is so much the power of who's behind the camera is just as important as who's in front of the camera, you know, and kind of those whose, whose gaze, you know, you are, you know, kind of providing a platform for those who you give kind of these creative tools to. 
is so crucial in how you tell stories, how those stories resonate, the, the nuances of those stories to and audiences. And at Nat Geo, you know, we have this, the famous Instagram, you know, 100 million plus followers. And it's this incredible story, you know, of why that's so big is because it was actually founded by the photographers themselves. So you had a group of photographers that are all the Nat Geo photographers sharing this, this Instagram and how it evolved then was to to continue building that that Instagram you have to be a National Geographic public published photographer to then be uh have access to publish your work on the the Nat Geo Instagram channel and what we were finding is because of the discrepancy you know in the male female ratio of photographers published in the magazine then you were seeing that reflected on the Instagram channel as well and you you know also putting rules in place you know to ensure that a photographer had to wait three hours you know after someone published to then publish their thing and you kind of saw different tendencies to kind of jump in front of the line a little bit so interesting. and so you know we we really posed that question of you know, in order to create more equity here, you know, you can have these kind of fairness rules, but in order to genuinely create more equity here, let's pull more seats up to the table. You know, let's say if you are, you know, let's, let's make that, that initiative to have more female photographers that we're bringing into the fold and publishing their work on digital platforms that we can do much more quickly than, you know, a magazine coming out once a month. And, give them an onboarding ramp to create that much more kind of parity in voices. So just an anecdote of, you know, kind of, of something that I experienced that was super crucial in bringing over to the Playboy fold as well. That was something Charlene was talking about earlier. I don't know if you were here, but just how, you know, men have, you know, a much more of a tendency to disrupt versus women because women are nervous about what the consequences could be. So the men, kind of broke the rules and like jumped in first on Instagram to share versus and women probably like were like, no, it, the rule is this. So how do we know what rules to break and which rules not to? Charlene, do you have a, a tool yeah, for which rules um, are breakable? Yeah, yeah. Women take rules seriously and men see them as guidelines. So, and, and that's a fundamental difference way that we think about things and, and yeah. frankly, oftentimes we're conditioned to be that way. Rules are made to be broken, rules are made to be followed. I don't want to cast it so much in such black and white terms, but people tend to fall into one bucket or the other. Yeah, It's not necessarily gendered, but yeah, we have different perspectives of rules. I'm, I'm worrying constantly. I'm, I'm just joining a big company with lots of rules. You know, right. am I allowed to go do this or not? And right. I'm like, I don't know, but I'm just going to try it until somebody tells me because I see it as a guideline. <laughs> so until somebody tells me, no, you really, really can't do that. So how, how do you know what rules to follow and not to break them? That's the only way I know. Yeah. No, and I also think that, you know, rules reflect a, a past set of ways of working. And so, you know, I think there's also a way to think about it as far as like rules being meant to be broken and rules being meant to be questioned you know, and understanding uh, why is this, you know, why is this in place and, and posing that question, I think can often lead to a really, you know, probably raising a bunch of eyebrows on, whoa, we hadn't thought of that. We had it, you know, it's that way because it's been that way for the last 20 years. Well, that doesn't make sense anymore. You know, so I think it's interesting to hear you say that because I think I'm probably in the rules or guidelines and rules are meant to be questioned. Um, 
you know, but that also that comes from a place of, you know, of immense privilege and and you know, and it comes from a place of, you know, just kind of immense privilege and a certain personality type. And I think it's also, you know, kind of as a leader, your role to constantly be questioning what are the written rules, what are the unwritten rules here to ensure that you're giving opportunities for those who maybe not be wired the same way or have as much privilege to stand up and and question or break the boundaries. Yeah. I, I love how you frame that in the context of privilege too as well. Same. So regarding equal pay, we were talking about that earlier too. And I'm just curious, you know, is it transparent at like, for example, Playboy equal pay? Like, and what advice do you give women to, to without, you know, how do they ask about that? Like, how do they approach that topic? So I can say that our uh, our general counsel and our chief people officer, I know, ha- are constantly digging into our data and we take diversity and inclusion immensely seriously and work with external firms to be tracking all of our data around, you know, kind of various vectors on gender and race and age and ability, you know, to ensure that, yeah, to ensure that compensation is is fair and equitable across the board. And you know, I think on a, on an, what you're going to ask for it, I personally always counsel friends and, you know, kind of colleagues of mine to a, to use the language of fairness, you know, okay. So let's think about this role. And if, if we were hiring, if you're in the place, if you're hiring someone off the street, what would this role be paid? Take gender out of it, take, you know, any other factors out of it. You know, what is the level of responsibility? How big is the team? Is this a management position? Is this a, is this a, a, a position with revenue generating responsibility? You know, what does, what, what might, you know, kind of others at, at like companies in this level, you know, be getting, and then, and then position your ask in a, you know, in an ambitious way with the context of, if you really want the role, I'm, you know, kind of still willing to talk if that's not what you have budgeted versus, oh, here's what I make now. So can you match that or, you know, kind of raise that a little bit? It's about what's fair for that role. And I think that fairness concept and that fairness language is really important in those discussions. Charlene, your thoughts? Again, I think knowing what you're worth and sticking to it and being able to walk away and it's one of the hardest things, because if you know what your value is and what you want for the contribution that you have, then you're going to stick to it and know that, you know, I'm not going to second guess what my value is. I'm going to ask what I'm looking for. And it's always a good way to think about this. Even if you got what you want, maybe ask a little bit more because, you know, it's a good negotiation tactic. You don't know how much more you can ask, but it's the biggest thing. I, I look for in my interviews, are people asking, are they demanding? Are they really looking out for themselves? So they don't do that. They're not gonna look out for my business when I'm hiring them. Exactly, and I think encouraging friends and colleagues when they're going through this process, my sister-in-law is going through this process right now. We were texting about it literally this morning, you know, kind of how big does she go? Uh, but, you know, I think in that, like the, they want you to ask to your point, you know, if, you know, they, they, they want to see that level of, 
that level of standing up for what you what you deserve they you know particularly if you're entering into a role where you're doing negotiation or you're entering into you know a senior leadership role they want to see that that level of you know of really being true to and smart about you know about what what things are are worth i have one more question and this is i just was on a twitter spaces yesterday listening to web 2 like how to transition from web 2 to web 3 and you know more what does web 3 look like for women i heard a statistic also that if women don't get more involved in web 3 and crypto as we go through this transition that we're going to be even more left behind so I'm just wondering what you both think about transitioning into Web3 and you know maybe some advice that you can give women about that and what that might look like in the next 12 months to maybe you know 5 years. Yeah, I will give my thoughts. What I'm seeing happening in the Web3 is that it's been taken over by what I call the bros and that it's a bunch of people who are mansplaining, talking up and just using acronyms, saying as much stuff as they can, as quickly as they can to explain what Web3 is and not doing a very good job. And so to be more inclusive in this space, because it is so new, it is happening so quickly that you want to surround yourself, you get knowledgeable. I mean, I'm basically as a technologist, as, as an analyst, hanging by my fingernails on this. And so I'm looking for the communities of people who want to explore this and are going to be supportive in our exploration of this together and push each other to ask the questions. But we have a choice these days. You know, in the early days of the web, we didn't have a choice. We were literally building the web and building the communities. Now it's so much easier to find the communities that are going to be supportive of us as we figure out what does this mean? What does it look like for us? and seek out the people who are going to build each other up and lift those ships up with that rising tide, rather than talk down to try to feel like they're the expert. Frankly, no one's the expert on this stuff. It is so new and changing so quickly. So surround yourself and connect with people who are going to be willing to give and to share and to lift up all those boats together. Yeah, and the only other thing I would add is that I think there there are a lot of accessible conversations and spaces to learn around web3 you know web3 um and you know the world of crypto lives right now in twitter spaces to your point lisa you know it lives in discord which is you know a whole a whole ecosystem but these spaces are relatively accessible. You can join a Twitter space. You can raise your hand if you want to get on stage. You can, you know, you can listen to 10 Twitter spaces a day and, you know, and take notes and three weeks from now, raise your hand and get on stage. But I think, you know, to that end, you can dive in. You know, I'm sure there are lots of conversations happening behind closed doors and in spaces that are hard to, you know, tap into. But I think there's enough accessibility that it's, you know, it it behooves you to, you know, to dive in and and, you know, to, to you know, to just really kind of if you want to participate in this this ecosystem to learn right alongside and to become a leader and, you know, and a voice you know, just alongside everyone else. I agree. There is a lot of opportunity and it, we do have to be careful that with this whole tech bro culture that's been happening since, you know, really web two is when things got kind of crazy. So thank you both for joining. I do appreciate it. Charlene, thank you so much. Good luck in your new venture. And I'm going to be watching and following all of your webinars and workshops and subscribe to Charlene's newsletter. She's always, are you still going to do your newsletter? 
Yes, and keep, okay. I'll keep going with all of that. Okay, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you can. I know you can subscribe on LinkedIn. So thank you both, and thank everybody for coming on live. And if you're watching the recording, thank you for that too. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the Female Disruptors Office Hours. If you want more, please check out our website at femaledisruptors.com. We are hosting the second annual Female Disruptors Virtual Summit in January 2023, and I would love to see you there, femaledisruptors.com. Thank you so much to our sponsors, The Buyer Group, Goat Social, and Social Media Pros.